Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. With the deaths of six migrant children while in U.S. custody or shortly after being released, and hundreds more children still separated from their parents, when do intentionally cruel immigration policies bear any blame for cruel results? We know that this implementation has led to the death of at least six children. Obviously, at the point where you had the death of one child, you needed to take stock and say to yourself, hey, this isn't working, we need to come up with a new plan. And as D.C. and cities around the United States launch celebrations of the poet of democracy, Walt Whitman, we speak to one historian about Whitman's real legacy on human rights that offer insights into the United States today. Certainly, there's a, a way in which you could read O Pioneers, one of his most famous poems, adopted by Willa Cather, as a poem about Manifest Destiny, right. you know, as a poem about west, westward expansion and white people's right to expand. These stories and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Now, when Donald Trump was running for president, he declared that he loved WikiLeaks, the whistleblower website responsible for publishing information about U.S. war crimes in Iraq and publishing proof of how the Democratic National Committee and the 2016 Hillary Clinton campaign worked to cheat Senator Bernie Sanders in the Democratic primaries. But on Thursday, Trump's Department of Justice announced that a federal grand jury charged WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange, who is not even a U.S. citizen, with 17 counts of violating the U.S. Espionage Act. Trevor Tim, executive director of the Freedom of the Press Foundation, said in a statement that, quote, the Trump administration is moving to explicitly criminalize national security journalism, and if this prosecution proceeds, dozens of reporters at the New York Times, Washington Post, and elsewhere would also be in danger, end quote. Unlike the trove of Russia conspiracy stories of the past two years, Nothing that Assange and WikiLeaks published was untrue. As Ben Wisner, director of the ACLU's Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project, said in a statement, for the first time in the history of our country, the government has brought criminal charges against a publisher for the publication of truthful information, he said. This is an extraordinary escalation of the Trump administration's attacks on journalism and a direct assault on the First Amendment. Assange had received political asylum for seven years inside the Ecuadorian embassy in London until April 11th when he was arrested and is now facing charges for jumping bail in the UK, for sexual assault charges in Sweden, and now espionage charges in the US. At a DC rally for Assange held in front of the British embassy last month, Dr. Margaret Flowers of Popular Resistance cited the responsibility of the UK to protect the rights of Assange as an asylum seeker. They should be protecting the rights of Julian Assange and this is exactly what the United Nations Office of Human Rights has said. That he should not be expelled from the embassy where he is seeking asylum, but that if he were to be expelled from the embassy, the British government has a responsibility to make sure that his rights as an asylum seeker that his rights are respected under international law. On Tuesday, 62 organizations, including Veterans for Peace and the Union of Concerned Scientists, issued an open letter to Congress reminding it that it alone has the constitutional ability to declare war 
and warning it to intercede before unelected officials in the White House, namely John Bolton and Mike Pompeo, lead the United States into a war with Iran. The same day, members of Code Pink demonstrated outside the Maryland home of John Bolton with chants of war criminal and reading from a giant pink slip that called for his firing as National Security Advisor. Notice termination of employment. No more mustache. We the people reject your warmongering. John Bolton, you're fired. Effective immediately. John Bolton, you're fired! John Bolton, you're fired! In climate news, on today, March 24th, more than 1,300 climate strikes are being led by students across the world, including in Afghanistan, Namibia, and Uzbekistan. During the first global strike, on March 15th, an estimated 1.6 million people participated. More information is at fridaysforfuture.org. In D.C., the GoGo Music community is organizing to support United Medical Center, the city's only large public hospital serving wards 7 and 8 in the district, which is being targeted with a proposed $25 million cut in its budget, while completion of a proposed replacement hospital is at least four years away. On tonight, the date of this broadcast, Friday, May 24th at 6 p.m., there will be a Don't Mute DC slash GoGo concert on the grounds of UMC, 1310 Southern Avenue in Southeast DC. There will also be rallies Saturday for African Liberation Day, won by the December 12th movement assembling at noon at the African American Civil War Museum, 1925 Vermont Avenue, Northwest and marching to the White House, and another by the African People's Socialist Party, with a parade starting 12 noon at the Anacostia Metro Station and ending at Union Temple Baptist Church in Southeast D.C. And finally in culture and media, the Walt 200 celebration officially launched on Thursday. Chantel James was on hand. On Thursday night, the room at Busboys and Poets at 5th and K was full of Walt Whitman aficionados of all backgrounds and ages who took turns reading the entire poem, Song of Myself, over the course of a three-hour marathon. As the 200-year anniversary of one-time D.C. resident Whitman approaches, the Walt Whitman 200 Festival opened with this community event. We spoke with Venus Thrash, co-editor of Beltway Poetry Quarterly and one of the facilitators of the reading, on the importance of this poet and his legacy to the city. Most importantly, he spent time here during the course of the Civil War. He was a nurse uh, here. So Whitman is very important and iconic to the D.C. area for many of those reasons, but also because he was such a prolific poet, and Song of Myself is, is such an iconic undertaking, so iconic that there have been poets who've answered Whitman back, such as Langston Hughes, who wrote, you know, I Too Sing America, so he's responding to Whitman's Song of Myself. Mm -hmm. And so, and of course, Hughes himself has connections to um, D.C., so it's all cyclic and connected, and Whitman's a big part of that. To learn more about upcoming events during the 12-day Whitman 200 Festival, which ends on June 3rd, visit their website, walt200.org. From Northwest D.C., this is Chantal James. We'll have more and a different take on Walt Whitman 200 later in the show. And those are headlines and happenings. When we come back, Gerald Horn on the International Beat and more. Stay with us.
This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. And now for more international news, I'm joined by our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. And I want to say first, Gerald, thanks for joining me at our fifth anniversary party. I know everyone was thrilled to see you. Some people were meeting you for the first time. My pleasure. Well, lots of international news Following up on our coverage of the Venezuelan embassy, which the United States broke into or invaded last week and arrested the peace activists who had been invited to occupy it, Turkey this week agreed to be a protectorate for the Venezuelan embassy. And this was reported by Code Pink. And they circulated a petition asking people to call on the U.S. State Department to accept this protectorate. And also, I think Switzerland would be a protectorate for the U.S. Embassy in Caracas. So what's your take on that? Well, the role of Turkey, I think, needs to be underscored. Uh, President Erdogan of Turkey has visited Caracas. Uh, President Maduro has visited President Erdogan in Turkey itself. Turkey is trying to carve out an independent path, even though it's a member of NATO in more or less good standing. It has many contradictions and conflicts with the United States of America, not least because Turkey is trying to buy defensive weaponry from Russia, which the United States sees as a threat to U.S. security, supposedly. And I should say, as I told the folks at the on the ground event last Sunday, Turkey has made many overtures to black Americans. Whenever President Erdogan comes to the United States, which is not frequent, he makes a point to meet with black Muslims. He engineered the renaming of the street in front of the U.S. Embassy in Ankara after Malcolm X. And his opposition also has been making numerous overtures to black Americans, too. So it does not surprise me that Turkey has stepped in to try to become the protectorate for the Venezuelan embassy in Washington, D.C. Also, two elections. I know that you mentioned on Sunday the Australian elections. In addition to Australia, the returns from India have come in. Well, both elections are very worrisome. Both are indicative of the onward march of right-wing populism. Take Australia, for example, where conservatives were not expected to prevail, not least because of their cavalier attitude towards climate change or climate crisis, to use the current term that's now being applied. Australia has been hit worse than many countries with this climate crisis with regard to frequent fires, drought, floods, the bleaching of the coral reefs, and yet somehow 
these conservatives who've taken a cavalier approach to climate crisis and have turned a blind eye to it somehow were able to prevail. And likewise, in India, the right-wing populist, right-wing nationalist, Hindu nationalist party, the BJP of Prime Minister Modi, prevailed. As a matter of fact, it was a whopping re-election victory on his part. It is very worrisome, not least, because one of the reasons that that party did prevail was that it helped to ratchet up tensions with neighboring Pakistan a few months ago, right before the election race began. But overall, these victories in both Canberra and New Delhi are indicative of this rise of right-wing populism that you see in the Trump administration in Washington, which you may see in the European Union elections that are taking place as we speak and will be going for a few days and are expected to result in, I'm afraid to say, a triumph for the Brexit party in the UK, for the neo-fascists under Salvini in Italy. It's quite concerning. I'm wondering how much voter tampering or election tampering can be a part of these victories. It's possible. Obviously, we're from the United States, and so we know that that's part of the fabric of elections in this country. And the tampering usually tends to benefit the right wing. So I think that that's an understandable and justifiable question. But I'm not sure if that was the decisive factor with regard to the triumph of these right wing nationalists in Australia and India. I'm afraid to say that with the decline of the left in recent decades, like a seesaw, you've had a rise of the right wing nationalists and populists. Not only, as we have just said, uh, in India and in Australia, but also in Europe and also in the United States of America. Well, also on the election theme, there's been some buzz about that's the New York Times article or New York Times magazine piece really smearing Bernie Sanders, who responded in a very unapologetic way for his opposition to Reagan death squads in the 1980s in places where now you see this tremendous flow of migrants where, you know, terror has been created in their countries in El Salvador, in Guatemala. So I don't know if you saw that piece. Well, I saw the attack on him in the New York Times in particular. And the New York Times is becoming somewhat schizophrenic politically. On the one hand, it styles itself as being in the vanguard of the anti-Trump and never-Trump resistance. It's pro-Republican Party columnists, Brett Stevens and David Brooks are proud members of the never-Trump resistance within the Republican Party, uh, which, as has oftentimes been said, is about large enough to have a dinner party, but not large enough to form a political party. But at the same time, they constantly excoriate Bernie Sanders. There was a dialogue between Bernie Sanders and the New York Times reporter Sidney Embers, I believe her name is, in the paper the other day, and it was really disgraceful how she was badgering him like she was Perry Mason and he was a witness on the stand. 
But it was a, a really comical, but it was also comical if it was also disgraceful. Kind of like, you know, but weren't you at this rally where they were sh- uh, shouting uh, anti-American slogans? And then he goes back, well, uh, weren't we attacking their country? And didn't we like bomb their ports? And why wouldn't they chant anti-American slogans? You know, so. Well, I, I think Senator Sanders acquitted himself quite well in terms of the exchange. But. In the larger scheme of things, what the interview was bespeaking was the inconsistency of this so-called anti-Trump press. On the one hand, they want to style themselves as being part of the journalistic resistance. On the other hand, they want to denounce and excoriate uh, Senator Sanders, who is a true emblem of the anti-Trump resistance. And then finally, and I, I kind of relate this to election coverage in a way because it's part of this Russia hysteria and Russia gate, the remnants of it, a Vox story, basically trying to promote a report, a seeming report about Russian attempts to stoke racial violence in the U S by training and arming some black folks and sending them back to the U S to, I don't know, make a, you know, fight for a, Free black state? I don't, not really sure exactly how it was supposed to go. Well, that report was also carried by NBC News. In fact, there were three reporters on the byline, which suggests that I assume they did some investigating of this story of Russia helping to try to foment a so called pan African state in the Deep South. Now, what the story did not reveal to its credulous readers is that even before the foundation of the Soviet Union in 1917, you had black Americans who were trying to establish independent states in Dixie. I talk about that in one of my books, the so-called Plan of San Diego in 1916, where black Americans were assisted by revolutionary Mexico, perhaps Japan and Germany at the same time to effectuate that particular goal. Then, as is well known, Oscar Brown Sr., uh, who is who was the father of the late lyricist Oxford Brown Jr., was a leader of the so-called 49th State Movement, which was trying to establish a black state in the, what is now the continental United States of America. And as we speak, there is an organization called the Republic of New Africa that has as a goal establishing an independent state in North America. And in fact, the mayor of Jackson, Mississippi, who is a leader of the progressive movement in that benighted state, is the son of a founder of the Republic of New Africa. I'm speaking of the late lawyer, Chokwe Lumumba. So this story in NBC News and Fox was rather ignorant and also rather inflammatory. And once again, was trying to have a throwback to the Cold War. That is to say, black people can't come up with ideas on their own We have to get these ideas exported from Moscow, and then they basically manipulate us like we're puppets. So I hadn't really uh, thought to uh, bring this up, you know, but you, you just mentioned this whole, you know, establishment idea of establishment of a black state and remind me of a piece that I just read And I guess it was reporting by the Center for Media and Democracy, but also by The Guardian. And it's about this Washington State Representative Matt Shea. I'm not sure it's pronounced Shea 
it's about this Washington State Representative Shea, S-H-E-A, and there have been some messages discovered that he sent and received discussing acts of violence against and surveillance of left-wing activists and violence against people in his own area that he represents. And and he's talking about committing violence against people he refers to as communists and Antifa. And the reason I brought it up is because the piece also talks about Shea introducing bills this year in the Washington state legislature to abolish abortion and deregulate firearms and also sponsoring legislation to establish the new state of liberty formed by dividing the state of Washington east of the Cascade Mountains. And so the article mentions that the goal of some white supremacist groups is to create a white homeland in the Northwest states. So Sanders is being red-baited and African-Americans are being red-baited, but you don't see a a similar type of baiting of these right-wing figures that are being supported by organizations like ALEC, the John Birch Society, and really they're in elected office. And you don't see a similar type of reporting or investigation of these type of people. Well, clearly they're walking in the footsteps of the 45th U.S. president, who, as you know, takes a very soft line, to put it mildly, with regard to white nationalists, white supremacists, those who were involved in murder in Charlottesville, Virginia, in August 2017. And it does not surprise me at all that there has been insufficient media attention, corporate media attention, I should say, to these uh, rather harebrained schemes of constructing these so-called Aryan republics in the far west. In fact, there has been a significant outflow of those defined as white out of California into places like Idaho, for example, for that precise reason. And that's what we really need to be paying more attention to. Right. Instead of the so-called black identity extremists, which which would characterize uh, the people that the that NBC is trying to smear. Exactly. So we certainly will keep an eye on this coverage. And I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you.
This is On the Ground on Pacifica Radio. I'm Esther Averam. Well, on Wednesday, the Trump administration revealed that a 10-year-old girl from El Salvador died in its custody last September, bringing the total number of migrant children to have died in the custody of border authorities in the last eight months to six. Before that time, either no children or very few children had died in the custody of Border Patrol that have been reported. Here in D.C., the death of the unnamed 10-year-old girl was reported by much of the corporate media as a partisan issue, not as part of the larger ongoing tragedy at the border and the treatment of asylum seekers. With me for this segment is Ophelia Calderon. She's a founding partner at Calderon Seguin, based in Fairfax, Virginia, and a member of the American Immigration Lawyers Association. She's also served as past president of the Hispanic Bar Association of Virginia. Welcome back to On the Ground, Ophelia. Thanks for having me. Well, first, I guess I should just get your reaction to the death of this girl in the context of the things that you're doing and the families that you're working with. Anytime a child dies, it's going to be a tragedy. It feels more tragic because it's in the media and we're sort of in the eye of the storm with respect to this issue of detaining families, separating families. It's just, it feels like it's one, one horror story after another, right? I mean, we started out last year, approximately a little over a year ago, talking about this new trend of separating parents and children at the border and then having them both be detained in these separate areas. And then we kind of worked through that fiasco over the summer. And now we're at this place where, okay, we, are st- we're, we still detain. There's some question mark as to whether or not we're still separating. Uh, there's exactly. some question mark as to, you know, what transparency we have with the government. Well, we just don't know. I mean, the government says they're enjoined from doing that, and yet they continue to do it. We know that the government has certain obligations under the Flores Agreement where they're not supposed to detain children for more than a specific number of days. We know that you know, anytime we detain someone, whether it's in immigration custody or criminal custody, that we need to provide them with a safe place. We need to provide them with shelter, food. I mean, we're not running some sort of third world labor camp here, right? I mean, we're detaining individuals who are here seeking refuge in the United States. And the worst is that we're talking about children. So, of course, it feels... It's, it's, kind of, it's even really hard to sort of pinpoint like what to be upset about or what are we angry about. Are we angry about children dying in custody, not receiving medical care? I mean, they're dying. I, I'm not, you know, I, I'm no one, I don't think anyone is accusing the government of, of killing these children, but if, you know, what would we do if this was our child? If our child came down with influenza, with the flu, then we would treat them, no? We would right. take them to the hospital. I mean, how does it happen that you have, of course, last, last December the death of Jacqueline Kyle McKean, right? She died of a bacterial infection. There was the 8-year-old who died also of complications from the flu and another infection. And then in April, another, you know, a young teenager, I believe, died after being in intensive care. That's one of the only ones that actually went to the hospital. And then another one who had, I think, I think that, that child actually had some sort of tumor, which is caused by an infection or some sort of head trauma. And, I, and then... Last week, there was a two-and-a-half-year-old who died after having, being hospitalized with pneumonia. I guess the hardest thing is that we as human beings and as parents and just people recognize that a lot of these conditions are treatable. And so we have to ask ourselves, like, how are these children getting these conditions and yet dying from them when they're, they're here in the United States? Well, one of the things that I think we've talked about before are the conditions that the children are being held in. And 
person after person has talked about, has referred to some of these detention facilities as the icebox. And so as parents, I mean, we recognize that if our child is cold or they don't have the, the proper amount of insulation on them, the right amount of bedding, that they're going to come down with what we commonly call the cold. And that if that's not treated, it can become more serious. It can, it can make the child more susceptible to a flu or, or some type of other uh, infection that can become very serious. So what have you heard from either clients or other attorneys about this, these ice boxes that these children and their parents are being held in? I have interviewed a large number of individuals who were detained at the border, and the Ilera, or the icebox, is is sort of an in-between place, right? So they are detained, then they're taken to this icebox where they're held until they can be processed and then shipped off to another detention center. So what's interesting about the icebox is just the varying amount of time that someone spends in that location. And right. I'm not sure what the purpose of the icebox is. I mean, allegedly, it's, it's really, really cold. That's why it has the nickname of the icebox. I think I heard anecdotally that CBP and or ICE or even HHS have said that it's to prevent the spread of other infection because of temperature, sort of like how we put things in the fridge. <laughs> like put people in the fridge. <laughs> right. Well, you know what I'm talking about, right? Like you right. have food, you don't leave it out on the counter. Right, because right. germs and bacteria grow in specific conditions, and so they're creating a situation where germs are, and bacteria are not going to spread. Obviously, that may not be the best solution for human beings, specifically children who are who, of course, are more compromised. And although children are resilient, they're they're also you know more compromised in terms of their ability to fight off infection and to deal with other types of illnesses. So everybody knows the story of the icebox. Like if you've ever interviewed anybody who's ever who's come through the border, I mean that's it's sort of like this weird sort of halfway house before they can push you on to the larger detention facilities such as Dili or Port Isabel or wherever it is you're going. Right. Well, I don't know if you saw the news basically how Representative Lauren Underwood of Illinois was treated in a hearing. So this is Representative Lauren Underwood speaking Wednesday in that House Homeland Security Committee meeting. At this point, with five kids that have died, 5,000 separated from their families, I feel like, and the evidence um, is really clear, that this is intentional. It's intentional. It's a policy choice being made on purpose by this administration, and it's cruel and inhumane. So that was Representative Underwood, and afterward, she was reportedly admonished and not allowed to speak for the remainder of the hearing, and her statement was stricken from the record. So she basically expressed, I think, the sentiment that many of us have expressed who've been covering the issue, that some of this treatment seems very intentional. Like if the Trump administration separated children with no and and it seems like in many cases with no intention of keeping even proper records of what child belonged to what parent, where they were from, if they had other relatives here. And still, more than a year later, as you're stating, many children are still not re reunited with their parent. And in, in other words, Representative Underwood said that these things seemed intentional. And I don't know if she was necessarily saying that the death was intentional. But the mistreatment was intentional. How would you respond to that? 
Well, you know that they say that the definition of insanity is repeating the same behavior and expecting a different outcome. I, I guess what I would say is I'm not sure that I disagree with Representative Underwood. You know this doesn't work. We right. know this doesn't work. We know that there are dangers that come with this. We know that there are consequences to these actions. And so I don't disagree with her to the extent that how we are carrying out the policy and implementing the policy of detaining families at the border, in particular children, we know that this implementation has led to the death of at least six children. Obviously, at the point where you had the death of one child, you needed to take stock and say to yourself, hey, this isn't working, we need to come up with a new plan. And then when the second child died, Perhaps we need to, I mean, I don't know when we should have known, but I mean, I don't disagree that we're at six children now, and so if we're continuing this policy and we're continuing to do the same things, I mean, they are intentional policies, and if you know what the outcome is going to be of a policy that you put into place, I'm not sure she's wrong. I don't believe that the deaths of the children are intentional, and I don't think that that's what she meant. I think that she meant that our actions are intentional, and as a result, the consequences that come with them are intentional because we know they're happening. Exactly. Exactly. So finally, I just wanted to provide listeners an update on what we've discussed in the past, which is the separation of children from their parents. I know that you mentioned it just previously, but what kind of update can you give us on that situation? We we know that the Trump administration was ordered to stop separating families, but then there's anecdotal and other documented information that they're still doing it. Well, you know, and that's kind of a hard question, right? I mean, we know that as recently as this spring, I guess that's a two-part question, right? So we know that as recently as as February of 2019, not all parents and children have been reunited. We know that. That's a given. We know that there continues to be parents and children, that there continue to be parents and children who have not yet been reunited. The question of separation is a more complicated one. It's more complex, right? According to them, they're not doing that. I don't know what that means except to say that I continue to have clients who come in as family units, and it's, you know, they may or may not leave one parent behind. That's a pretty common fact pattern where you have a mother, father, and X number of children, and they continue, they separate them to the extent that they detain the father at a different facility, and then they take the mother and the children to a family shelter. So we know that's still happening. I, I'm not sure that I can really answer that question with any any real certainty, in particular, given what I said, I think, in the very beginning, which is that I think we have a problem with transparency. Okay. So the government can tell me anything they want to, but I, I, I mean, I have a problem with transparency, and I'm, I, I would expect that most, uh, most Americans who are following this particular issue also have a problem with transparency for the reasons that I previously stated. Well, I hope that as those of us continue to cover the issue, we can help create more transparency. Certainly, that is what the families deserve. I've been speaking with Ophelia Calderon. She's founding partner at Calderon Seguin, based in Fairfax, Virginia, and a member of the American Immigration Lawyers Association. She also served as past president of the Hispanic Bar Association of Virginia. Thank you for joining me today, Ophelia. Thanks again for having me and inviting me on. Space in my time, but oh, I'll stay. 
on the ground on the ground show.org voices of resistance from the nation's capital i'm esther Ivarum. and kicking off here in dc and around the country are events marking the 200th anniversary of the birth of walt whitman though whitman worked as a school teacher a journalist civil servant and union army nurse here in dc during the civil war he is best known as one of america's most famous poets that infused ideas about equality and democracy in his poems but this anniversary has also created the opportunity for a rereading or reevaluation of Whitman's work, especially comparing his poetry to his essays and journalism, which includes racially derogatory language and ideas about white supremacy befitting his particular era of the 19th century. So joining me to discuss this seeming paradox of Walt Whitman is Lavelle Porter, 
assistant professor of English at New York City College of Technology, CUNY. His first book, The Blackademic Life, Academic Fiction, Higher Education, and the Black Intellectual, is forthcoming from Northwestern University Press in October. He is author of the recent article in JSTOR Daily, Should Walt Whitman Be Hashtag Canceled? Black America Talks Back to the Good Gray Poet at 200. Welcome to On the Ground, Professor Porter. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, Walt Whitman worked as a journalist off and on through much of his life. And it's through his journalism that I know I found out about this other part of his writing. So so why didn't Whitman's ideas about democracy in his poetry extend to his prose? Well, you talk about his career as a journalist, and that's actually a good place to start. He was writing for the Brooklyn Daily Eagle. He was in Brooklyn, which was at the time uh, primarily dominated by the Democratic Party of the 19th century. Uh, which was a pro-slavery party. And Whitman was very much in tune with uh, the, the pro-slavery rhetoric of his time. So Leaves of Grass actually brings a sort of more expansive view of humanity, and he infuses that into his poetry. But I think if you look at some of his other writings, you see a much more complicated view um, of race, uh, both when his early writings, uh, when he was more pro-slavery, and then there's some of the later uh, comments that he made in interviews where he talked about differences between the races. So when you talk about pro-slavery, tell me about the Free Soil Party. I know that he was part of this party and one of the abolitionists, Lloyd Garrison, I think, uh, called it a, uh, a party of white manism, <laughs> which was kind of funny to me. So tell me about his early pro-slavery views, because I think most people think that may have may have developed later. Well, it was the comeback that you often get when we talk about this, is he was just the man of his times, and, you know, people are people of their times, and he was definitely of his time uh, when it comes to that. I think scholars have often looked at his trip to New Orleans as a turning point, when he actually sees uh, people on the auction block uh, when he goes to New Orleans. Um, and that's what inspires that famous part from the section of Lisa Grass, uh, later titled I Sing the Body Electric, where he's viewing people on the auction block. So uh, partly it was that trip and actually seeing the brutality of the slave auction changed his perceptions about slavery. I know I didn't ask you this beforehand, but do you happen to have that in front of you? So this is a section from the 1855 version of, of Leaves of Grass. And later he would add some titles to some of these. There were 12 long untitled poems originally. Um, and he added uh, titles to them later. Uh, this section became I Sing the Body Electric. A slave at auction. I help the auctioneer. The Slavin does not half know his business. Gentlemen, look on this curious creature. Whatever the bids of the bidders, they cannot be high enough for him. For him, the globe lay preparing quintillions of years without one animal or plant. For him, the revolving cycles truly and steadily rolled. In that head, the all-baffling brain. In it and below it, the making of the attributes of heroes. Examine these limbs, red, black, or white. They are very cunning, in tendon and nerve. They shall be stripped that you may see them. Exquisite senses, 
Life-lit eyes, pluck, volition, flakes of breast muscle, pliant backbone and neck, flesh not flabby, good-sized arms and legs, and wonders within there yet. Within there runs his blood, the same old blood, the same red running blood. There swells and jets his heart. There are all passions and desires, all reachings and aspirations. Do you think they are not there because they are not expressed in parlors and lecture rooms? This is not only one man. He is the father of those who shall be fathers in their turns. In him, the start of populous states and rich republics. Of him, countless immortal lives with countless embodiments and enjoyments. Wow. So I can certainly understand why people thought that, you know, this is a person who really has not only empathy, but a real kinship even with, you know, people, other Americans of a darker hue or, you know, who were very different. So I read one account or one analysis or critique that said that it was very different in ter when slavery was actually happening. And I guess before and during the Civil War, as opposed to after the civil, when, when he didn't want slavery to expand and he saw slavery as a threat to white labor and the, I guess the, the, the cohesion of the union versus after the civil war, when he saw black labor as a threat to white labor and that he had a whole different idea about black people at that point that, you know, that's where he expressed certain things, like even calling black people baboons. Yeah, certainly. I mean, again, that's, you know, something that was very prevalent in his time, this attitude towards black people as competition in the labor market. That was what was behind the draft riots in New York in 1863, right? And Irish were being drafted into the Union Army and resisted that because they felt they were basically fighting to free the very people who were going to take their jobs, right? Wow. So, you know, he's very much, I think, influenced by that. And I think that also helps you to see how difficult these issues are in their own time. I teach Whitman, I teach slavery in my American literature classes, and, you know, everybody assumes they would have been an abolitionist. <laughs> and I tell them many probably would not have been that these are difficult moral issues and it took people who were who had a real strong moral vision to say this is this is wrong and that wasn't most people and then this Walt Whitman 200 celebration is occurring as the Trump administration is actually evoking some of these same ideas of US imperialism what we call white supremacy and they're talking about openly uh, articulating ideas that we consider from the 19th century, like the such as the Monroe Doctrine. And these are some of the same ideas that Whitman expressed in his non-poetry writings. So we've kind of covered some of the paradox, some of his paradox in terms of addressing issues of race. But what were some of, and I guess we've also kind of talked about labor. Were there other issues that he discussed in terms of, for example, I don't know, Native Americans? You know, actually, I, I know. I, I actually saw something that he was writing about in terms of the ideas of manifest destiny and America expanding into Mexico's territory. And he basically 
so I guess I'm kind of answering my own question, but one of the other things that I, that I saw him address was the idea of a uh, American expansionism. And he basically said, well, you know, it's better for white people to basically expand because what do, what do Mexicans know about ideas about democracy and, you know, what are, what are they going to do with this land? It's better for us to have it kind of just kind of like just ideas of manifest destiny. Yeah. I mean, certainly there's a, a way in which you could read O Pioneers, one of his most famous poems adopted by Willa Cather as a poem about manifest destiny. Right. You know, uh, as a poem about west, westward expansion and white people's right to expand. So some of this is contradictions that are within his poems um, as well. Mm-hmm. And I think people have talked about them through the years, but for me, I mean, when it comes to this 200th anniversary and where it falls politically, just as you were uh, talking about, I think it's an important moment to actually address those ideas in his work. And this is not only to just accuse him (laughs) of being politically incorrect. I think that it's important to recover why he was so radical in the first place, right? Because it wasn't only the issue of race, it was also sexuality um, in his poetry, Mm -hmm. right? Um, He he wrote things in Lisa Grass that were considered obscene and that are even shocking to this day when I teach it with my students. So you're going to encounter some stuff that seems pretty surprising that somebody put down on a page in 1855. Right, because he was maybe bisexual or homosexual? Yes, mm-hmm. yeah. And so that homoerotic desire is very much expressed in that poetry. And it's one of the reasons why he wasn't really considered somebody who was a canonical dead white man. That's something that happens afterwards. Um, and it largely happens by ignoring that aspect of his poetry. So as you experience as we all experience this uh 200th anniversary what are some of the i mean are there any other ideas that you think that we should be thinking about um other than what we've already discussed oh uh, certainly the civil war <laughs> um, mm-hmm. i think that's you know uh one of the things that's most maybe relevant in his work because it feels like we're kind of at a, another moment where it feels like the you know things are being rent into and that was something that he experienced uh, as you mentioned, being a, a nurse in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Okay, well, um, that's that's a good note to leave it on because it's something for us to think about and uh, not only in terms of his writing, but in the kind of the flow of history, which is which is what you teach, right? <laughs> right. And I, should, I should also say, you know, the, the title is kind of clickbait. I mean, I'm obviously not, you know, advocating for canceling him. In fact, I kind of make the point that, you know, there isn't really such thing as cancel culture. Most of the time when they make these critiques about certain artists, uh, they don't really go away. And it's not, I don't necessarily think that his work should, you know, be pushed aside. It just should be engaged with in its, in the fullness of all the things that he said. Right. Okay. I got you. (laughs) All right. Well, I've been joined by Lavelle Porter, assistant professor of English at the New York City College of Technology, CUNY. His first book, The Black Academic Life, Academic Fiction, Higher Education, and the Black Intellectual is forthcoming from Northwestern University Press in October. Uh, And he's author of the recent article in JSTOR Daily, Should Walt Whitman Be Hashtag Canceled? Black America Talks Back to the Good gray poet at 200. Thank you for joining me today, Lavelle. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And that will do it for today's show. 
This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. Special thanks to Professors Gerald Horn and Lavelle Porter and to Attorney Ophelia Calderon. And to Chantel James for our going to the Walt 200 celebration. And thank you for being a listener, especially all of those who came out to celebrate our fifth anniversary on Sunday. You can contact us, support us, partner with us, and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook or Twitter under On The Ground Show. And we are on iTunes and Google Play under the title WPFW On The Ground. And better yet, please, please, you can still support On The Ground's fifth anniversary on our website. The music we played this hour included Stevie Wonder, Black Man, and Doug and Gene Karn, Revelation. Our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace. Peace.